how we live depends on what we believe. And the Buddha pointed to a way of understanding reality that if accessed, if realized, if understood ourselves, opens the door to living in harmony, living peacefully, living with awareness, being free from suffering. This understanding that the Buddha pointed to comes to us in three different ways. We can hear about it. We read books, you hear these talks, instructions, and we take in the general concepts, the general understanding of it. We acquire it from other sources, so to speak. And then with that information, we ponder, we reflect, we think about it, we check it out, we apply our reason, reasoning, our logic, our thinking intelligence to it and further massage understanding from it that, that applies to us. And then through our development of mindful awareness here, we directly experience the understanding that the Buddha pointed to for ourselves. We understand it through observing our own experience. And it is only through this form of understanding that we're actually able to free ourselves to derive full benefit from the Buddhist teaching and free ourselves from suffering. The Buddha codified his realization of this understanding in the Four Noble Truths, which have been spoken about. First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha, which I'm sure you're well aware of. The Second Noble Truth is that that dukkha is caused by craving or attachment which Kamala spoke about the other night. The third noble truth is that there is a, the cessation of, of, of dukkha is possible. And Guy spoke extensively about that in one talk. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path, an eightfold path divided into three trainings, which is the, the way to develop this understanding that frees us from suffering. These three trainings of the Eightfold Path are all mindfulness practices. And the first is the training in sila, or the training in right speech, right action, right livelihood. It is or requires being mindful of how we speak, 
how we act, and the intention behind it. It is the practice of the precepts, as we've undertaken here. And in one sense, it's not particularly Buddhist, because not killing, not stealing, not acting out your uh, desires, not misusing intoxicants, these are, these are kind of universal behaviors of, of all good human beings. But nevertheless, because we haven't kind of purified our speech and behavior, it takes practice. And so it's a mindfulness practice of noticing our intentions, trying to develop loving kindness, having a sensitive attunement to our heart's understanding of what's right and leads to the end of suffering or no suffering and what's wrong and leads to suffering, both for ourselves and others. When we're able to uh, practice or to sustain this mindful awareness of our intentions and our loving kindness, it has a significant impact on our relationships with others. Allowing us or supporting our intention to live in harmony with one another. Without the carefulness of speaking and acting with sensitive attunement, it would be hard to live in harmony with one another. And even here we can see with all this support of living in harmony with the precepts and understanding and practice and silence, it still is not always easy to live in harmony with everyone here. And so we see it's, it's a practice. It's not automatic. We haven't fulfilled that mindfulness in our life yet. By purifying our speech and behavior or undertaking the practice to the extent that we fulfill the practice, we overcome or we're able to exercise the restraint of acting out our defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those defilements, those actions that transgress upon others. Saito Utejaniya, a monk I've been practicing with the last few years, he says, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. Wisdom shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. And so as we pay attention to our speech and behavior and our relationships with one another, mindfully, we see. And it doesn't take deep insight. It just takes paying attention to see what causes harm to yourself, to others, and being willing to acknowledge that and then to amend our behaviors. 
Nevertheless, even if we could live in perfect harmony with one another, our minds might drive us crazy. Because just because we don't say it doesn't mean we're not thinking it. And so there's a, an additional practice, a more powerful practice, if you will, required to not suffer with that obsession in the mind or the obsessing of the mind. The mind's obsessing to fulfill its desires, its aversions, its confusions, its bewilderments, its fears, its depressions, its ambitions. I'm sure you've seen what I'm referring to. And so this Mm -hmm. second training of the Eightfold Path is a training in stabilizing the mind. Stabilizing the mind so that those obsessive defilements are not running rampant. And it comes about from being mindful of them. Being mindful of those habits of mind so that when they come up, we're not confused by them, we're not deceived by them, we're not also acting them out. And we're able to exercise the restraint, see them, change them for the good. Replacing aversion with loving kindness, uh, greediness with generosity or letting go, delusion with understanding, patience. We do this by purifying the mind of these defilements. And when the mind is free of the defilements, even temporarily, the mind, we say, is secluded from the torments. And the mind that's secluded from the torments gets happy. It enjoys its experience. Whatever it's knowing is a cause of delight. When it's not contaminated, when the mind is not contaminated by the defilements. Nevertheless, conditions change. Our effort weakens. Our understanding heads elsewhere. And we can get obsessed again. We get caught in some changing conditions and the mind is inflamed with greed, hatred, or delusion again. And so a third training is required, a more subtle yet more powerful training And this is a training in panya, or understanding, developing a wise understanding. And this is accomplished through practicing insight, where we are mindful of not just our speech and behavior, not just the activities of the mind, but we're mindful of the minute pixels of our experience the pixels of physical and mental phenomena which carry this mind throughout time. And by paying careful attention to them and seeing them as they truly are, we purify our understanding. And we purify our understanding of wrong views. We remove the wrong views that are latent in the mind. 
We've spoken extensively about the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, and the impersonality or the anatta characteristics. These are deep, strongly conditioned, wrong understandings in the mind that, given a doorway, given an opportunity, will arise in the mind, confuse us, and lead us to speak and act and think in a way that is bound to lead to suffering. I want to talk about understanding, knowing, and insightful knowledge. Knowing, you know, someone brought up the question the other day, what's, what's the difference or what's the similarities between knowing, mindfulness, understanding, wisdom, and all those words that we use sometimes synonymously? Well, knowing has several components. And one component is vijnana, or consciousness. And it is just pure knowing, pure consciousness, pure cognition of the senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. But knowing, or vijnana, only knows what comes directly to the sense doors. It's always present, always happening. But it neither recognizes nor understands what is being experienced or what is being touched in this moment. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding of what's going on. It just simply knows sights, knows sounds, knows tastes, knows It is perception, or sanya, which recognizes or takes note of the distinguishing characteristic of what is known. Sanya marks it. It knows the difference between red and blue. It, it takes note of that. It takes note of the different shapes between round and square. It takes note of those differences in order to distinguish one experience from another. But even in that, there is no valuing of one over the other. There's just the recognition of the distinctiveness of each moment's experience. It is wisdom or delusion which then values or devalues what is seen, what is observed, what is known and recognized. That understands the experience, either rightly with wisdom or wrongly with delusion. And it is wisdom or delusion which adds value to the experience which is known and recognized. Let me give you an example. We're in the middle of a forest here, and we've all looked at trees. But we all see something different. The vijnana, the consciousness of each one of us, whether we're a forester, an environmentalist, a developer, a carpenter, someone who runs a sawmill, 
what they all see, as we too see, is the form, shape, color of a tree. The eyes see the same thing. So it's not personal to you or me that the eyes see what they see. But when that knowing of that color and that shape goes into the mind, something else happens to it. Sanya, or perception, begins to take note of it. Now, a forester might take note that, oh, this is a, this is a pine tree, not a birch tree, not a maple tree. May also know that, oh, this tree is healthy. It's a mature tree, or it's an immature tree, or it's not healthy. And a forester would know its place in the ecosystem, where this tree grows, where it doesn't grow, what conditions it needs. That's what a forester's sanya, or perception, reveals about what has been seen. An environmentalist, on the other hand, sees the same color and the same shape, but understands, oh, this is an, a, a tree in an old-growth forest. It is a symbol of nature, the way things should be. It's natural and values it for that. The property owner who has this tree growing on his or her land sees it as an investment, and when it gets mature, there's some money in it. Or maybe the property owner has no intention to realize a, a financial value of it, but remembers planting that tree or remembers time spent pleasantly in the shade of that tree. And so when the, the property owner sees that tree, he or she sees something very different than the forester. The developer sees an obstacle to where he wants to build a house. And, or maybe if he's a, a smart developer, he sees how to design the neighborhood around that tree in order to keep it, to have an old-growth tree in a suburban neighborhood. But he or she is seeing something different than the environmentalist or the forester. The sawmill operator sees so many thousand board feet of lumber and how long it'll take to cut it. Carpenter sees it as, oh, the kind of wood it is, its form, its function, its use in building. This is all individual functioning in the mind. Each one of us, as each one of them, has their own conditioning that sets off this train of recognition, understanding about what is seen, what comes in through each of the sense doors in each moment. So we have vijnana, all beings see the same thing. We have sanya, everyone or all beings have their own conditioned recognition, what they take note of in in seeing that tree. But it's wisdom that's going to make another difference. Each individual will understand the value of that 
tree conditioned by what they know, what they think, and what they have experienced. So, some of those, or some of us, will see that tree with attachment. We see it because we want it to live as a symbol of the old growth forest, or we want to, we, we, we're attached to it because we see the value, financial value of it, or we're attached to it because it's on my property. Or maybe we see it with aversion. It's in the wrong place, it's unhealthy, it's going to disease the other trees. It, you know, we can have aversion to that tree. Or we see it with delusion. We don't know the value of the tree, we don't care about its value in the ecosystem. We, we're not very, we don't care about it. These relationships of attachment, aversion, delusion, they're very personal. And it's here where we, if we act on them, then we're acting out of self-interest, our personal values. But a wise person sees clearly the tree, the shape, the color, understands all the perceptions, all the different perceptions that one may have about the tree, understands its value from all perspectives, and if necessary, chooses a course of action in relationship to that tree that minimizes suffering. For all beings, if it's at all possible. How do we know what is wise relationship to all of the experience that we see every day, that we hear, that we feel, that we think about? How can we know that we're seeing it fully and not just caught in our own limited interpretation a single perspective out of all that's possible. This is why we pay attention. I'm sure you've seen in your own practice here how something comes up. You're untying a psychophysical knot of some sort, and when you first see it, all you see is your emotional reaction to it, the rage or the fear or the desire. And after a dozen times, it comes up again and again and again and again, and you're looking at it, you're noticing it. You start to see other, other facets of the whole situation. You start to see that, well, maybe you don't have to be quite so angry, or maybe you're not quite so attached to that person or that thing. And if you sit still long enough, and you see it each time it comes up, you will in time see all the facets of that experience. And only then can you make a wise choice of how to respond. A couple of years ago, I and our neighbors were in the process of extending the water system to our area of Maui in order to get a better water supply for fire protection. And it was a very expensive endeavor that we had to 
construct for the water department. And it, the, the cost was mushrooming, and, and it was just getting pretty unreasonable. So I called the deputy director of the water department to ask him if I could come speak with him to see if there's some way we could reduce the requirements and the cost to us of doing this project. So I made the call, and he set up an appointment, and I went with an agenda of topics that I would like to discuss, that I wanted to discuss with him, to see if there was some way to reduce the cost of the project. So he had two or three engineers in the room, and uh, he was sitting behind his desk, and I went in and handed them all a, an agenda and proceeded to inquire whether we could reduce the size of the water tank from 10,000 gallons, which was a 250,000-gallon, 250000 dollar piece of the project to maybe a thousand gallons and so I asked him if it was possible and he talked with his engineers they looked through a few rule books or ordinances or whatever they are and after a few minutes discussion they came back and said no you know we're not able to do that because we need blah blah blah, blah. no we can't do that so I said well how about if we can reduce the number of pressure reducing pressure reducing valves from three to two, they cost $50,000 a piece. So they had another discussion. They talked about the elevation and how many feet between pressure stations and blah, blah, blah. And after another five or ten minute engineering review, he came back and said, no, we're not able to do that because there's too much elevation drop. Okay, how about reducing the size of the pipe from eight inches to six inches? Just so we could... They had another discussion, and the answer came back, no. And after a couple more topics, the deputy director looked at me, and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to tell you. Life's unfair. <laughs> Thank you. Well, in that moment, it's a good thing I had 30 years of practice because my mind went through, reviewed every possible reactive response I could have. You, you know, I was embarrassed, I was humiliated, I was ashamed, I was angry, I was raging, I was like incensed, I was, I got depressed, I got fearful, I was just like, you know, all in about. And within you know, the mind arrived at this place that said, oh, this is the way it is. This can be dealt with. It, is, it surprised me as much as I'm sure it surprised them. Because the mind, if you can watch it just see all the facets of that situation, and there were many responses I could have had. But the capacity to just sit and watch the, the mind change and watch all the reactivity in the mind and not jump, not bite, not get caught, I think, allowed me to, well, maybe choose the wisest or the course of action that would cause me and them the least suffering. Not that I liked it. I didn't like it. It was going to cost a lot of money. But nevertheless, it was the path of what least resistance and least suffering.
Sadhu Tejaniya says, try to observe how the mind deals with a difficult situation as often as you can, from as many different angles as possible. Once you've developed an understanding of how the mind works in this situation, wisdom will naturally begin to do its work. Next time you're faced with a similar difficult situation, wisdom will prevent you from reacting in an unskillful way. Wisdom knows what to do. This work that we're doing, this meditation, is the work of the mind. Developing awareness, he says, Saito says, is a lifelong journey. It's more like a marathon than a hundred-yard dash. If we have any other understanding about the development of awareness, it's going to cause us suffering. It isn't something you get and then have and then that's it. It's through the ongoing observation of all that life shows you that we're able to see more facets of our mind and more consistently choose the path of least suffering. It's not only what we observe, it's how we observe our life. What is our attitude towards what it is we're seeing or going to see? How we pay attention. Some of you have noticed that our conditioning in this culture, in Western culture, is, you know, even for the least of us, is, is very ambitious. If you want something, get it. Go get it. Do what you have to do to get it. Whether it's earn money, get a degree, or, uh, get a job, get an education. You know, if you want something, just go for it. And we have that conditioning. We all have that. We're all here, maybe with that conditioning, maybe with that idea in our practice. I've got five weeks. I've got nine weeks. You know, I'm going to get it. Have you suffered with that yet? <laughs> you know, that's not how you get it. Nevertheless, you, you have to make the effort, of course. But that attitude of, I'm going to get it, doesn't allow that balance of mind that's going to let all the different facets come into view. To be relaxed, to just wait. I've started giving some of you the instruction, wait. You know, you're in a hurry, wait. You don't know what you're supposed to do next, wait. What's wrong with waiting? You think the moment's not going not gonna to be there when you get there? I mean, you think you're going to get ahead of this moment somehow? What's the hurry? I mean, I'm just pointing to my own conditioning. Kamala tells me this all the time. Wait, wait. You know, I'm working on it. Wait, because in that posture of not seeking but allowing, then the moment comes to us. We can recognize it. 
But it requires, you know, careful attention, being there, being present, not looking for something in particular. If you're looking over there at that door to see who comes in it, you'll never see who comes in the back door. If you're aiming your mind towards what you think you're supposed to be attending to, how will you see what actually arises? Wait. Relax. Trust that your awareness will, recognize, will see the present moment and your perception will recognize it. It is a wrong attitude to expect things to be the way you want them to. Or to anticipate that they'll be anything like you're familiar with. Nevertheless, we try to create what we think is good practice, good meditation, good experience. It's a wrong understanding to think that there is something special you're supposed to be experiencing. There isn't. Whatever you experience in each moment, that's what you're supposed to be experiencing. There's nothing more than that. And it's how you relate to that. It's not the object that's so important. It's how are you holding your mind in relationship to that experience. Can you be, can I be, ready for whatever comes? Without editing, without preconditions, without any judgments. This kind of attention is, is hard for us who have such ambitious conditioning. To let go and to just be ready for what comes. But it's not only what we observe or how we observe, it's how we understand what we observe that's also important. You know, we all observe the tree, but how we un and we all see the same shape and color, but how we understand what we see makes all the difference whether we suffer, or the tree suffers, or others suffer, or not. And so, it's how we understand our experience that is going to reveal to you whether there's suffering in your relationship to it or not. So the instruction is to observe the present moment. The present moment is either internal, physical, mental, or external, environmental. When we observe this mind and body, we have spent 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years cultivating attachment and identification with this mind and this body. But the Buddha said, you should consider the experiences of this mind and this body as not me, not mine, not who I am. So we read that once, and we've had 30 or 40 years of thinking otherwise. Is it any surprise that it seems like it's my body, my mind? 
That's how we believe our experience to be. But that's just a belief. And so our our effort or our attention in, in practice needs to have that right understanding, that right view of the body and the mind in the background. We need to have heard it. We need to allow, maybe allow the possibility, even though it's not how we understand, but just to allow the possibility, having read what the Buddha said or having heard what the Buddha said, having had it explained to us in, in, in talks. And then we observe present moment. What do we observe? We observe heat, coolness, tightness, tension, pressure, pulsing, vibrating. You know, we observe thinking, planning, wondering, wandering, commenting, analyzing. These are all the activities of the mind. They're the nature of the body. When you experience pulsing, hardness, is it different than the person sitting beside you experiencing pulsing or hardness? No. Is pulsing personal? Is hardness personal? All beings experience this. It's easy to see. I mean, this is not deep philosophical ruminating. It's pretty obvious that we all experience these, the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the activity of the mind, the nature of experience. Why do we attach to it? Why do we attach to it and say, this is me, this is mine? That's wrong understanding. And so we let this understanding that we've heard kind of float around in the background and not try to force it onto our experience. We're not trying to overlay our experience with this understanding. But we're letting this understanding just operate in the background so that if and when we, we, we observe in such a way that we may see that indeed, oh, this is true. We allow that possibility to be there. We undermine our assumptions that it's my body, it's my mind, by holding or allowing this, this right view that the Buddha pointed to to be there. Think about this, or, or remember, recall in your experience the difference between being angry Thinking about your anger, it's my anger. I should be angry. They said this, I said that. They shouldn't have done this. I, they, and we get angry. Or, you know, if, if anger isn't, if you're not an aversive type like me, but you're a desire type, okay. Feel your attachment, your greed. Wow, that's what or who I really want to spend my time with. And you can see it's, my desire, my attachment, my wanting. When we, when we personalize those very impersonal experiences, we suffer. There's a big difference between personalizing our defilements and being mindful of them. Being mindful of them is able to recognize, oh, this is, this is, this is anger, or this is desire. This is attachment. This is longing, yearning, wanting. 
whatever. And it's not cutting off from it. It's not distancing ourselves from it. It's feeling it. You can only be mindful of what you're actually feeling. So you have to feel the unpleasantness or feel the pleasantness, feel the anger, feel the desire in order to be mindful of it. If you're not feeling it, you're not mindful of it. You're thinking about it. Being angry, thinking about anger, and being mindful of anger are three very, very different experiences. Part of our practice is to learn the difference and learn how to disentangle ourselves from the defilements, not by suppressing them or rejecting them or denying them, but by being mindful of them. This is really actually a very important understanding to practice with, that what you observe in the body is the nature of the body. What you observe in the mind is the nature of the mind's activity. It's universal among all beings. We've spoken about mindfulness a lot on this retreat. It's one of the eightfold factors in the path. It is about observing our experience. Mindfulness is about observing so that we can see clearly. But because we have wrong understanding, because we have our own view of things, if you will, we make mistakes. We all make mistakes. In most of life, to avoid your mistakes, to deny your mistakes, to minimize your mistakes, can sometimes seem like the, the right thing to do. But in practice, we would be far better to acknowledge all our mistakes. Because it's through making, our mista- making mistakes that we begin to see what works and what doesn't. We could say that making mistakes is the stepping stones of our path. We go to extremes in making striving, or we go to extremes in kind of being too relaxed. We go to extremes in emotional reactivity. But by going to those extremes and falling off the edge, seeing our practice flatten out or go over the edge, then we realize we've gone too far. If we're wise, if we're paying attention, we'll recognize that. What it was that that went too far. How we went too far. Paying attention with intelligence. We're not just kind of sitting there like a, a camera that doesn't know anything, watching what goes by. We're watching what goes by with understanding and intelligence, monitoring what is skillful to do what is wise to do, what is not wise to do, seeing when we make a mistake so that we can correct that mistake, not make that mistake in the future. The work of awareness is to know, Sadhu Tejaniya says. It is the work of wisdom to differentiate what is skillful and unskillful. Mindfulness just knows. It's wisdom that understands Does this lead to suffering or not? 
as we pay attention to all that we experience, all that comes into our view. It's helpful to remember that it's not just what we see, it's how we understand what we see. Imagine you were going to a foreign country, a foreign land where you'd never been before. You didn't really know the people there, what they do, what their cultural habits were. Didn't know anything about them, except you were going. Well, you could feel a little anxious about that trip. But if you get your you know, Lonely Planet guide to you know, that obscure place, you know, your life, your future, whatever it is, and you get some knowledge about this place, these people, their culture, you could feel a little bit more confident in going. Nevertheless, when you get there, having read about them isn't quite enough. You know, you can still be a little tentative, a little fragile, a little frightened, a little insecure. And even if you observe, you just watch what's going on. You watch what people are doing. You watch how they relate to each other. You watch what's going on. If you don't understand what they're doing, it will be hard to feel at ease. But once you enter the culture, once you enter their understanding of what it is they're doing, and you understand correctly their behaviors, their speech, their actions, then you can live at ease. Then you can live with that understanding more peacefully with a better chance of happiness. It's not just book knowledge. It's not even being there and observing. But it's how you understand what you observe that will indicate to you whether you're suffering or not. That foreign land is your future. It's coming upon us or we're coming upon it all the time. How we understand it from the past is not the full picture. What others have told us about our life or the way practice should be is not the full picture. It's only by being present, being there for your life and understanding it correctly, can you learn to live in harmony, learn to live with peace of mind. The objective of insight or knowledge is to know the truth, to know the way things are. Understanding is the goal, Peace and happiness is the result. When we're no longer caught by our assumptions, our wrong view, our fear, or any of our defilements, then we have the opportunity to live in what? Direct connection with our life, with the way things are, and understand it correctly. When we can see, or as we develop the capacity to see deeply into the way things are, that they're impermanent, that they have this characteristic of being unstable, that they are impersonal or evanescent, 
then we can move our life into alignment with this understanding. This is, this is the direction of Vipassana practice, to see clearly and to move our life into alignment with what we see. Then a sense of well-being can arise in all conditions. Because we understand about this situation, about this condition, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, internal or external, familiar or novel, if we deeply understand the way things are, we can live in harmony with them. And then we can act, too, compassionately so as not to cause ourselves or others suffering. Sadhu Tejaniya says, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in your life. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change. And this understanding will help you to do well in your life. So let's sit for a moment with the words quiet down. The work of awareness is just to know, and the work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and what is unskillful. Thank you for listening to Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.